As we study these events of so long ago and the story of how sin entered the world, Lord, we realize that we have so much to be grateful for in what you have done for us and how you have saved us by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ from the uh, ultimate result of sin and rebellion. And Father, we know that even though we read the story of Paradise Lost, we as your people will regain that paradise one day as we are with you, and that that will be for all eternity, and we give you praise for that. Now, Father, we trust you to be very present with us during these next few minutes to guide us in our study together of your word. And Father, in Jesus' name, we resist every effort of the enemy to hinder and to block, and we ask that you will be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the third chapter of Genesis, last week we looked at the first few verses of this chapter. We talked a little bit about the serpent, and we looked at passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah which seemed to give us some background as to this serpent, of course, the one who empowered the animal, that is Satan. And the week before, we'd actually looked at the passages in Revelation which caused this, or give us this equivalency. The serpent of old, we're told in Revelation, the dragon, Satan, the devil. And so he shows himself up for the first time in this third chapter, and we have this encounter between Eve and the serpent as recorded here. And I'd like to begin reading at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. At the end of class last week, we looked at some passages in Scripture which help us to realize that when we sin, it's not because the devil made us do it or, or that God led us into the temptation. In fact, of course, as you know, in the Lord's Prayer, we ask him to lead us not into temptation, not implying that he does lead us in, but that he protects us from that as you look here at this particular passage, these two verses, you see something that many commentators have pointed out. I think we notice that the temptation was three-pronged. First of all, the fruit appeared good for food. The lust of the eyes. It, it appealed to bodily appetite. I mean, this wasn't an old, dried-up, scrunchy-looking thing up there that the, that the enemy tried to make look good. I mean, it did look good. Secondly, it, it appeared good for food. Secondly, it was a delight to the eyes. This is the lust of the eyes. The first one is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It, appeared, it appealed to the emotions, or some say it had aesthetic value. And thirdly, the fruit was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. It appealed to the mind, to the soul, to the desire for self-realization or self-actualization. We hear a lot about that these days, don't we? In 1 John chapter 2, we have the verse which puts this all together or delineates it. 1 John 2, 16 for all that is in the world, the lust of the, eye, of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. That was the clear situation. What she was faced with was the temptation of the enemy with that which the world would ultimately become and the allure that the world would provide. God put the tree in the garden, yes, but God did not provide the temptation. The enemy brought the temptation, and of course the choice to fail was Eve's. Now it's kind of interesting 
that as you read through the first few chapters of Genesis, you will look in vain to find out what that fruit was. Traditionally, it's been called an apple, but we have no reason to believe it was an apple. Uh, first of all, apples are not native to that part of the world. That doesn't mean it couldn't have been in Eden, but doesn't seem likely to have been there. Personally, I feel the tree was totally unique, that it was a one-of-a-kind tree, a fruit unlike anything else. Some say, well, it was the fig tree because they sowed fig leaves to cover themselves. Well, that's not much evidence. I don't know, to me, a fig wouldn't be particularly attractive anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't have any hard time at all resisting a fig. <laughs> but uh, a lot of people like them, I suppose. It could be a problem for somebody. But... Uh, I think the tree was unique, and I think when, when God drove them out of the garden, the tree was, was removed in terms of an actual physical tree, or somehow it disappeared, and I don't think there is any fruit in the world today that replicates that fruit. What the fruit was, of course, wasn't important anyway, was it? It was the act of disobedience that was the real temptation here. Eve ate the fruit. Now, we're not told what the immediate impact of that was. No, did it feel like lightning going through her being? Was she suddenly electrified and, uh, you know, frightened? We don't know. It doesn't say. But whatever was the immediate impact of her di disobedience, she didn't want to be alone in the consequences. And so she went to find Adam. Now, as I mentioned last week, I don't think he was far away. Now, what the exact details were surrounding Adam's actions are not given here just says, and she gave him, and he ate. That's pretty simple. Sounds like he was standing right alongside her, you know, and she took a bite and gave him, and he took a bite, which I don't think is what happened. But those details are not given. She probably told him what she had done, and why she had done it, and how she had been attempted to do this, and uh, how it was so delightful. Now, whatever Adam thought his motives were for eating of the fruit, the scripture says that he ate not because he was deceived, but as an overt act of disobedience. First Timothy, what happened to First Timothy? I lost it here. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Paul here very succinctly says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now, this is within a context of, of Paul's discussion here. But the point is, Eve was tricked into doing what she did. Adam was not tricked. He knew exactly what the consequences were. And, in the, and he knew that as he took, I shouldn't say exactly, he didn't know exactly what the consequences were, but he knew it was an act of disobedience, and yet he did it anyway. He chose to do it. Now, some have tried to make him very magnanimous here and say that it was because he didn't want his lovely wife to be in sin alone while he stayed in perfection. I don't think he was, I don't think he was that gallant. Uh, I think he chose to disobey because he too had this, this desire for self-realization, for self-exaltation, even as Eve had. It was Eve who committed the first sin. But you'll notice in the passages you read in Scripture that it doesn't ever say, and sin entered the world through Eve. It was Adam who carried the burden for bringing sin into the human race. The well-known passage in Romans 5, verse 12, puts it pretty clearly. Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And Paul goes down in the latter part of that same chapter and if you read those next few verses all the way to the end of the chapter, you keep finding one man, by one man, sin entered into the world. It's clear that Paul understood Adam to be a literal, single human being. 
Paul understood him not to be just a term for the early history of humanity as, as, they, as humans evolved from some subhuman creature. One man, a single act, and of course he contrasts that with Christ as one man who by one act brought life. So the one brought death, the other brought life. And, and it doesn't make any sense if we try to talk about one man, Adam, as, as the generic term for the human race, because then you have to talk about one man, Christ, as a kind of a generic term for all redeemers. No. Paul clearly believed in a single individual called Adam who was a historical being. And that seems obvious here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. This, again, makes the point clear. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So sin entered the human race through one man, Adam. He was the head of the human race. He was the first creation of God. He was the head of the family by God's choice. He sinned with his eyes wide open. And therefore he bore the responsibility for disobedience. I think it's important, though, for us to not be too hard on Adam and Eve because I think if we had been in their places, we would have done no better. I mean, had we been created perfect, as they were, we have to remember that they were perfect without blemish, without fault, without weakness, and they sinned. <laughs> Who are we to point the finger, knowing what we are like? Sin entered the world through Adam, but it is our own personal sin, as well as what we might call the original sin that comes through Adam, for which we need a Savior. Now, if you follow the various schools of theology that have developed, you know that there are some extreme schools that believe that original sin was such that every single human being born or, or conceived on this planet is automatically under the, the condemnation of sin, and it doesn't matter when that human being dies in the process of its gestation or the early years of its birth, without having come to know Christ, it's condemned to hell. I find that to be a little bit difficult theology. I believe, of course, we are under the condemnation of original sin, but it seems pretty clear, I think, from knowing something of the character of God, that until a person arrives at that place of being able to understand where they stand before God and make a choice on their own, that there is that point where if they were to die, like a one-year-old baby dies, I believe, even as David believed, that that child would be in paradise where he would meet that child one day. We are all born under the curse of Adam's sin. But it's for our own personal sin and rebellion that we are condemned if we die without Christ. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Paul here quoting from several Psalms. He says at verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then we know, of course, verse 23 of that same chapter, one we usually memorize, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All have sinned. Not, that all, not only that all have been born under the sin of Adam's, the curse of Adam's sin, but we have all sinned ourselves. There is none of us who does good uh, in and of our own strength. You probably all have been faced at some time or another in your effort to witness to someone with the person who believes that as long as you endeavor to do what's right and, and you know, don't murder people and and, you know, don't cheat on your income tax that, you know, God will have to say you did okay and, and let you in. Sort of like, you know, Jerry Lewis, because he runs the great, what is it, muscular dystrophy uh, telethon or whatever it is, that obviously God is obliged to him 
because of this great charitable deed that he has done. But the scripture is clear, that is not an act of righteousness. There is nothing you and I can do in our own strength that is righteous. We are altogether evil. Only righteousness which is ever done through a human being is done by God through that human being. If we do something that is righteous and good, it's God doing it through us. That's why we have no right to glory in ourselves, but only, as Paul says, in Christ. We glory in him because he does the good. He is the righteous one. He makes us righteous and then moves through us to accomplish righteousness by his Holy Spirit's power. So we have no reason to take credit for anything good. We can take credit for a lot of evil, but we have no right to take credit for anything that's good. That's why it's so sad when we see uh, leaders in the Christian world who, who fall. And often it's because they have arrogated themselves to the point where they believe God owes them something or, or, or that they are really good people. When they're not. Hard, hard for us, I think, sometimes to, to really get a handle on this and to recognize that even a man such as Billy Graham, who every time we see him is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, is, is an imperfect person and has sin in his life too, and he'll be quick to admit it. And all of you certainly have heard in the past, and you can still hear him, Vernon McGee, uh, from tape, who, who admits the fact that he says, you know, said of himself that he, he didn't think it was getting any better, really. You know, he, he kept sinning and doing things that were not right in God's eyes, and he didn't know why this was so. I mean, he knew why it was so, but he wished it weren't. Immediately upon the completion of their act of disobedience, Adam and Eve were, became separated from God. Now, you and I refer to the term death, and we think of death as, as ceasing to exist sometimes. That is, the world often thinks of it that way. But, of course, death really simply means separation. There are two deaths you and I know about from Scripture. The first death, which we all go through, most of us I don't think have yet in this room, but that's separation from the body. Some may wish we could be separated from the particular body that we have, but separation from the body is, is, is the death we all go through. The second death, of course, is separation from God eternally. Now, unless we're born again, we, we live our lives dead spiritually, separated from God. And we go into eternity that way, and it becomes an eternal situation, which Revelation calls the second death. Now, Adam and Eve, who had been alive unto God, now become dead, separated from him by their overt act of disobedience. The door was also open for, spirit, uh, for physical death. Now, we know they didn't just bite of the fruit and drop over dead, like Ananias and Sapphira as they lied to the Holy Spirit. No, they continued on. And we read in Scripture that Adam went on to live almost a millennium. We, we aren't told how long Eve lived. So obviously he didn't die right away. But the door was opened for death, decay, and corruption to enter this earth. Now, I think personally that we need to view it as the impact slowly developing on planet Earth. I, I don't think that the moment they sinned that the tiger and the lion started eating people and other things that were living creatures. I, I don't think that disease became rampant on planet Earth overnight or that mosquitoes suddenly all became bloodsuckers overnight. I think it, it, it was a slow process. I think this is partially illustrated by the fact how long they lived. 900 years, 800 years, and I don't think there were some kind of a truncated year. No, they got all messed up and they really meant months instead of years, no. I think they lived a long time. And, and, and it seems that the impact of, of what they did came upon the world slowly. And you and I, of course, today live in a world that's been fully impacted for a long time. Fortunately, there still is the good of God here that mitigates some of that. But the sin impact was not only upon Adam and Eve, it was upon the whole of creation. God did not leave an imperfect man, an imperfect woman in a perfect world. 
The whole world, the whole universe began to be impacted by this imperfection. And I think it was at that point that what we call, or what scientists call in, in physics, the, 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 the second law of thermodynamics went into effect, the law of entropy, and that basically is that everything is winding down. And, and you know, the scripture basically says that, that the whole universe is running down like a clock. And, and it's going more and more towards chaos and disorder. The, earth, the initial creation had to be perfect in every way. Every planet was perfectly in its orbit. And every, every stellar system was perfectly in its place. And then as a result of this, things began to develop chaotically. And the clock began to run down. The, 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 the heavens began to wax old like a garment, as the psalmist tells us. It is this fact, I think more than anything else maybe, that denies the very possibility of the theory of evolution being true. It can't possibly be true if we accept the historicity of Genesis chapter 3. 1, 2, and 3. It just can't be. Because if there was no death before their sin, <coughs> then all of the creatures that existed could not have evolved from some simpler form because for that evolution to have taken place would have required trillions and trillions of creatures to have died over vast eons of time and would have required the law of entropy to be non-existent or to be reversed. That is, that things tend to go steadily towards randomness and chaos rather than becoming more organized and more orderly. So, really, there's no question about whether evolution is a possibility, it's an impossibility. And of course, many of those who uh, have run through the whole theory with, um, through the probability system have proven. <laughs> I mean, it's improbable, not only improbable, the probability of, of these things happening the way they say is so small as to be infinitesimal. Adam and Eve found themselves overwhelmed. Now, they thought they'd be overwhelmed with a sense of, of the knowledge of good and evil, of being godlike, but they were not. They were overwhelmed with guilt and shame, and they had never known this before. They didn't even know what it was to be guilty or to have shame. Suddenly, this is what they felt. And they showed their feelings in two ways. First of all, we're told that they made loin coverings for themselves, girdles to hang around their waist of fig leaves. Obviously, that's a renewable garment, but it's not really a terribly adequate garment. I've never tried, you know, wearing fig leaves, but your artists uh, of the medieval world of Renaissance and going back through time frequ frequently use them in the artistic renderings. Even the statues have little fig leaves on them. But uh, it was kind of interesting that this is the only tree named in the garden. The only tree named throughout these first past, this first portion of Scripture is the fig tree. So we know there were figs in the Garden of Eden. And some have said, thereby, that must have been the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, that doesn't prove anything. Obviously, fig leaves happen to be larger than a lot of other leaves and you know, have a kind of a... A toughness to them, and so they could sew them together with some vines and weave it around their waist and have some kind of protection. Now, why did they do that? Why didn't they hang the fig leaves over their head? Why did they hang them around their waist? Well, obviously, the intent was to cover their reproductive organs. Now, some have taken this, therefore, to mean, and to me this is absurd, but some commentators have said this means, therefore, that the temptation that the fruit was sexual intercourse and that sin was the act of sexual intercourse. Well, that's stupid. Uh, first of all, God told them to be fruitful and multiply and, and repro reproduce in the earth. And, and that was before there was any sin. How were they going to do that otherwise? You know, clone themselves? No, I don't think so. Obviously, that had nothing to do with it. But now they're experiencing a shame over their nakedness. 
because their oneness with God and their oneness with each other was now broken. <coughs> before they had been at one with God, at one with each other, and they had no sense of nakedness either before God or before one another. They had been able to completely fill, fulfill one another's needs prior, and they had no fear of exploitation. There was no concept of exploitation as we have it today in our society. But with this implicit trust and this implicit goodwill removed, shame set in. They were ashamed of their obvious differences. They also realized that they would be bringing children by sexual reproduction into a world which they have polluted with sin. And so their guilt tended to focus on this reproductive capacity. It's kind of interesting that that shame has basically stuck with us as a human race. Even peoples who run around virtually stark naked in certain societies have a sense of shame in certain areas and under certain conditions. Most of us in Western society, particularly, quote, Christian society, uh, would be ashamed of our nakedness. And many times when, when people are in, in some societies where they put people in prison in order to try to tear them down emotionally and psychologically, they deny them clothing. And as a result, they break down so much more quickly before their interrogators. In addition to making these loin coverings of fig leaves, we discovered that they hid from God. Now, uh, let's save that Hebrew passage because I'll refer to it again in a, in a few moments. We'll look it up there at that point. But, but what you see here, uh, this act is futile, but it's common human experience. Is it not? Have we not at some point in time tried to hide from God, as it were? To run from God because we were ashamed of our sin? Instead of immediately going to him and, and confessing, do we not or have we not in the past sometimes run? Well, that's what Adam and Eve attempted to do. Let's look at the next few verses in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The servant, serpent deceived me and I ate. This is now page 13 of your outline. Now, it seems to be implied here that Adam and Eve were treated to a daily time of fellowship with God. You know, it's not real specific here, but it, it seems to be implied. And as it drew towards the cool of the day, it's called cool of the day here. And you might have a marginal note, as my Bible does, which literally says wind of the day. And the literal word there is not cool, it's wind. But most commentators believe that, well, that simply means the time of the day when the breeze picked up, and so it was probably in the evening. So towards the evening of the day is the general accept, generally accepted idea here. They were expecting God, but now they are dreading his coming. They expected him to come because apparently they were accustomed to this, but for the first time, they dreaded this encounter with the Almighty. Now the scripture says, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God appeared, was, was coming to talk with them. It's kind of interesting that, how, how did God appear to them? How did God come to them? Was it just a voice in the trees? Was it 
you know, like a voice coming out of the clouds? Or how did God commune with them? Did they just stand there and hear voices in their ears? Were there mental images planted on their minds? Or, or did God come in a way that they could perceive with their natural senses so that they could hear with their ears and see with their eyes the Lord God? Well, it, it doesn't say in a way that we can be sure, but uh, one of the old-time commentators, Delich, says that he, he really believes here that certain other statements back in chapter 2 indicate that God appeared visibly. He says when, when it says that God brought the animals and when God brought Eve, he feels that that implies that God visibly walked the animals to Adam and that God visibly walked Eve to Adam. Well, that's his, his idea, his interpretation. But, but you and I are well aware of the fact that there are many theophanies in Scripture where God appears either as the angel of the Lord or in some form that appears human at least. We, we know when God had his interchange with Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He came and, and Abraham at, at first perceived him as a man and then later, of course, understood that he was the Lord so there's no reason to believe that maybe God didn't appear to Adam in a human form. Whatever was the case here, they weren't really too excited about coming to meet God again. And we're told that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Now, I looked up this word for sound and it's translated, as you know, if you have a, 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 new, a New American Standard Bible before you or an NIV, it's translated sound. But if you have a King James, you'll notice it's translated voice. They heard the voice of the Lord. Now, I think the NS, NASB and the NIV are going with what seems to be at least the more limited interpretation within the context, whereas the King James Version was going with the more frequent interpretation of the word because of the 500 times that this word, Q-O-L, is used in the Old Testament, 60% of the time it's translated voice. So it could very readily be translated voice here, because what would be the sound of God walking in the, in the garden? Was he heavy-footed? Crunch, 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 you know. Was he crashing through the trees? Or was there a wind with a voice on it? Was there singing? Was God simply saying their names as he came through the garden? We don't know. We can speculate all day long if we like. But they knew it was God coming. It wasn't an elephant or a giraffe. It was God coming to meet them. Whatever is the case, Adam and Eve hid from his presence amongst the trees. What a futile act. I mean, they knew God better than that, but, but they didn't know what else to do. They were afraid to stand as they were right out in the open. Their guilt and their shame was so great that they were afraid to meet God face to face. Do you ever feel that way after you have fallen flat on your face? Feel shameful in going before God and confessing your sin? Well, I think that's the universal experience of true believers. We don't go for, before God proud of our sin, do we? If we do, we're fools. We're shame, ashamed of ourselves, as they were. Now, what's interesting is God was not going to let them hide. He called to them and asked them where they were. Now, obviously, you and I well know God knew where they were. He not only knew where they were, he knew all about everything that had happened. But nevertheless, he says, where are you? Why? Because he wanted Adam to admit his condition. He wanted Adam to say, here I am and I have sinned. I have disobeyed you. Now the fear that Adam and Eve felt as they were about to face God, I think is perfectly understandable. And if you and I can put ourselves into their shoes, well, into their bare feet, we would feel the same way, right? I think so. And as I read that, it reminded me 
of the passage we know so well in Exodus chapter 20. And let me just read a few verses from that for a moment. Exodus 20, verse 18. This is at Sinai. Israel has come across the desert to Mount Sinai. And Moses has led them thus far. And they've experienced the miracles of the Almighty. And now God is ready to deliver and is delivering the commandments to his people. Verse 18, And all the people perceived the thunder, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain upon you or with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. These people were scared to death. I mean, God's power was demonstrated in all these physical manifestations on the mountain there. And some have said, well, you know, it was nothing. Sinai was just a volcano and happened to be erupting at the time. Oh, baloney. This was a miracle of God. And they knew that this was no natural phenomenon here. This was God present on the mountain. And they were afraid. Because why? Because they knew they were sinners. And he was a holy God. Adam and Eve knew enough about God to know that he was a holy God and they knew they had disobeyed, and they were afraid. And they had every right to be afraid, every reason to be afraid. Now, Adam admitted it. He said that he was afraid. You know, that's kind of interesting, because that's an emotion Adam had never experienced before. In however many days or weeks he had lived before this time, he had never experienced the emotion of fear before, especially not a fear of God. Now, what reason did he give for his fear? I'm naked. Well, I mean, after all, this is God. He made you that way. No. He's not going to be offended. He had always been naked before, and he talked perfectly normally with God without any shame or any fear. But now he was ashamed of his nakedness. The fig leaves that had covered their shame in one another's eyes were obviously not too useful with the Almighty. They provided no covering because the eyes of God were all-seeing. And he was an all-knowing God. Now, now let's look at that passage in Hebrews chapter 4. Again, it's a well-known, oft-quoted passage. I think it's important to tie the two verses together as they are here, verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents, intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. To flee from God is futile. To hide from God is useless. You cannot hide from the one who sees all and knows all. No, even as the psalmist said, if I, if I go to the very depths of Sheol, lo, thou art there. Wherever we go, God is there. We cannot hide. And that's the foolishness of trying to cover sin. It cannot be covered. We might cover it from one another, and, and you and I probably do not know personally the individual sins that, that plague our lives here, but there's not a person in this room who hasn't committed a sin in the past day or two or five, or many for that matter. And of course, most of us would be very ashamed if they were all broadcast on a screen up here for all of us to see. We'd all want a whole lot more than fig leaves. We'd want a power outage. But before God, they're there. Until we confess them and they're under the blood of Christ, and then what happens to them? 
puts them in the depths of the sea to remember them no more. So we can really, I think, sympathize with Adam here, but at the same time recognize the foolishness of what he was doing. Now, God spoke, as God spoke, they, of course, felt totally exposed because of the cutting power of God's word, just as we read in the 13th verse of Hebrews 4. The word of God cuts to the very quick, to the very core. That's why the word of God has got to be preached for people to come to know Christ. Preachers can get up, and I, you've heard as I have, right? I, I sat down once to, to listen to a well-known television preacher, and at the very beginning of his program, he stood in front of the Bible and he read one short little verse. And they spent an entire hour talking, sharing his mind and his thoughts that to me seemed not terribly relevant to the verse that he read. And what it becomes is a kind of a, an attempt for this, this power of positive thinking type idea that maybe you can persuade people by human persuasion, but that's, that's ridiculous. It's only going to last a short time if it lasts at all. It's God's word that's got to be proclaimed. It's God's word that's going to cut in there and make the changes, going to expose sin and bring shame and cause people to repent and confess their sin. And so God spoke to them. And obviously the trees, no matter how thick, or the fig leaves made no difference. They were totally uncovered. Now their shame concerning their physical nakedness was simply the outward manifestation of the true nakedness which they felt, which was spiritual nakedness. That's what really causes shame and guilt in an individual. The fact that we are spiritually naked before God. They stood guilty of blatant disobedience to God. He had said to them, everything in this garden is yours except this one tree. And they had gone to that one tree and disobeyed the ex explicit command of God with no excuse, no reason, simply their own desire for self-realization. Now what's important, I think, here too, is the fact that, that since they felt guilt and shame, there was hope for redemption. To be without guilt and without shame for sin closes the door for opportunity for repentance and forces God ultimately to condemn. The person who feels no guilt and no shame will not repent and therefore will die in his sin and face eternal damnation. So the existence of this shame and this guilt was a good thing. It enabled the door to be opened there for redemption. Now, it's kind of interesting. All of us know, and maybe at some time before we knew the Lord, had this idea that God was some kind of a, a laid-back grandfather who, you know, with a gray beard who looked down and said, well, really, Sonny, you ought not to have done that, but I understand. It's okay. We'll, we'll think better next time kind of an idea about God. But let's look again at that verse 11 of chapter 3. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Does God beat around the bush or what? Does God say, Well, my goodness, how in the world could you feel that way? What, what possibly could make you feel that way? No. Did you sin? When we stand in the presence of the Almighty, when the word of God is being proclaimed in power, sin just looms before our eyes. And you and I as believers do not get to the place where we no longer feel that there's sin in our lives. But rather, at the closer we walk with God, the more we recognize to be sin. The, light, the brighter the light of God's word becomes, and the more we see in our life to be sin, which before we didn't even recognize the sin at all. Oh, we re recognize the blatant things, you know, if I go out and stick a knife in somebody, probably God doesn't consider that to be a good thing. 
But, but Jesus says, you know, if you even wish somebody to be dead, you're as guilty. And then you can even go beyond that and, and realize there are many other passages in Scripture which teach us about thinking of somebody as being lesser than we. That's sin. To think that I'm better than somebody else is sin. We're to think of everyone as better than ourselves. This doesn't mean we're foolish and we think that, you know, it's like the runner who gets out there and he can run the 100-yard dash in, in 9-5. It's silly for him to think that I am better runner than he. Can he run 100 yards? Probably. Well, I could run it, but not 9-5. <laughs> but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the character of the individual, the, the value of the individual before God. And the closer we walk with God, the more we recognize what it means to be God-like, godly. So God here goes straight to the heart of the problem. And by this, he doesn't give Adam a chance to beat around the bush. But he gives him an immediate opportunity to do what? Confess and repent. Unfortunately, Adam's confession was a little watered down. He doesn't deny he did it. But he said, she is the woman. He tried to pass the buck to Eve. And really, by inference to God, right? The woman whom thou gave to be with me. Who? You, God. You gave her to me. And she caused me to sin. I sinned, yes, but it's not my fault. <laughs> it's really your fault. Now, it's kind of funny, but, you know, we've all been in that place, I think. There have been times, uh, we, we've seen this quite often, if you've ever counseled with, for example, a husband and a wife who are having a bar bad time in their marriage, quite often this is going to happen. Each is going to blame the other for failures in their own life. And I'm sure we've all done it ourselves, right? We pass the buck. It's easy to do because we don't like to be guilty. Adam, I mean, that is Eve, followed Adam's cowardly example and she pointed the finger at the serpent. Now, that's a little more understandable. The serpent was the one who deceived her. The serpent does represent the enemy. But again, we can't say the devil made us do it. Maybe, what was it, Flip Wilson? Is he the one who got that thing going in terms of making it that particular phrase? Maybe that's his idea, but that's not Scripture. So what we have is neither Adam or Eve willing to accept full responsibility for their sin. And this continues to be the human condition. The vast majority of the human race out there will not accept responsibility for sin. They won't even call it sin. They won't even believe there's such a thing as sin. Do what you want. Whatever is right in your own eyes, do it. You know, Scripture talks about that. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes in the days of the judges, for example. And really, that's what the medieval world in Europe was all about. Every man doing right in his own eyes until you have this king and this prince and this lord and this duke and this count, and they're all fighting each other. Nobody has power. Nobody has authority. Neither was willing to accept full responsibility. Most men and women, down through the millennia, have refused to accept responsibility for their sin. They've refused to humble themselves before God. And the vast majority have gone to their graves without God's mercy, without accepting God's mercy, because they wouldn't do what's required, and that is to confess their sin and repent. I will refuse to accept the fact that what I did was wrong. I chose to do it, and therefore it's right by definition and I don't need God. This is really the expression of many, per se. And they go to their graves without the mercy God has offered because they, their pride will not let them confess and repent. Certainly, we realize that God didn't ask the questions that we find in verse 11 where he says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? And then in verse 13 where he says, what is this that you have done? God doesn't ask those questions to be informed, right? God didn't say, well, how in the world did you do that? God knew. But he wanted them to face their sin squarely. He wanted them to confess to him that they had sinned. And then, of course, ultimately 
to repent. And in this initial passage, we do not find that. We do not find clear repentance. Oh, there's, a, there's an admission, a qualified admission, but with a passing of the buck. And there is no repentance that we can clearly determine here. We assume from other things which happen that they probably did repent and were transformed. But it's not clear from this particular passage that that is so. God, because they were not willing to accept responsibility, God was forced to bring punishment. Now, the impact of the sin would have come anyway, but it becomes specifically uh, stated, it seems, as a punishment or a discipline from the Lord because they would not accept their responsibility. And then we have the next passage, verses 14 all the way down to verse 19, where God tells what will be the result of what has happened. He deals with the serpent, he deals with Eve, the woman, and he deals with Adam, the man, and he gives the impact upon each of these. And it's very, very important that we look at detail in the, at these. And so that's, I'm going to draw the line right here today so that we can pick up with verse 14 next week and look at God's discipline and God's redemption. Because in the midst of the impact of sin, God makes a clear promise for redemption. And one of the most important passages of all of Scripture is given for us in the middle of this and helps us to begin to understand. And I believe that the enemy understood quite a bit from just that. And that's why he worked so hard in the subsequent centuries to try to destroy the fruit of Abraham and to destroy those by whom the Messiah might come. 